Good morning, everyone. We continue in our, our study about how we change deeply, and we're really focusing this week on how pride may sabotage your change project. Our scripture reading for today is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, this story shows us um, how much of a sabotage it is to approach God with any pride whatsoever. The, the Pharisee liked to look down on other people. One of the most interesting things uh, to me about the life of the Apostle Paul is he was a Pharisee, and he was probably the, the best, the, the most uh, passionate Pharisee, the most dedicated, devout Pharisee that anyone could be. And in his writings, you, be, you begin to realize that he saw everyone else as some form of competition. So if someone was, someone was more knowledgeable than him, he couldn't have a relationship with them because he had to beat them. He had to, he had to be better than them. He had to learn everything they knew and become even more you know, righteous than they were. And if he met someone who was, who was righteous... Uh, who was not righteous, I should say, he, he actually disdained them and disdained their, um, their um, what do you would call, lack of passion or their lack of discipline. So the Apostle Paul, in many ways, was unable to have relationships that were meaningful with God or with other people because of his own comparison of righteousness, his pride, his spiritual pride. So this Pharisee, this Pharisee who comes to the temple is, is a picture of a prideful religious righteousness. And so anytime that you have this temptation to start thinking of yourselves in terms of comparison with other people, to see yourself as better than and they, they in some way worse than you, then what happens is you're looking to justify yourself by that comparison. This is an incredibly dangerous practice because it allows us to excuse our areas of weakness or excuse our areas of sin, just like the Pharisee does. He's pointing out all the things that justify himself. He's pointing out all the things that make him better than this tax collector. And 
what happens is when we're using comparison, not only is it the root of it pride, but but it is a defense against having to change. It's a defense against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It minimizes where the Spirit wants to change us and how desperately we actually need the change. So Tim Chester, again, this is a book you can change. It's an excellent book. He said, we don't like to think of ourselves as bad people. We don't want to think of our hearts as evil. So we don't take responsibility for our sin. We may admit that we need change, but we don't want to admit that we are the problem. And so we have a number of avoidance strategies. Self-reliance says, I'll do okay by myself. Self-justification says, I'm doing okay by myself. Making that claim always involves involves excusing, minimizing, or hiding sin. Now, I can't help, as I read this, I can't help but go back to this incredible reality. Jesus has come to live in your heart. He said, I'm not sending you another different from me. I'm sending you another just like me. You, as a believer have an, you know, an unshared fullness of Christ dwelling within the walls of your life. When you excuse, minimize, hide, when you use you know, self-justification, all of these different things, when you use these things, what you're doing is you're grieving the divine resident of your heart. You're quenching the divine resident of your heart. In other words, Jesus has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you everything you need to be a partaker of the divine nature. And when you excuse, minimize, hide, you're rejecting that. Luke 18, 9 says, He spoke to those who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone. See, the Pharisee prays with pride. He, he makes a spectacle of praying to God, but in reality, he's praying to himself. His prayer was self-exalting, self-justifying, and the end was all dependent on his own self-righteousness. The Pharisee prayed with a measuring stick, and he felt that he looked good in comparison to others. Pride sabotages repentance by making us confident in our own goodness. Pride makes us minimize our sin while maximizing others' sin. The tax collector also prayed with a measuring stick, and he found that he did not measure up. He lifted up his prayer before God and found himself sinful and in the greatest of need. He stood a great distance from God, and he beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector actually had the reset that we need. Here's here's how important humility is. The Pharisee is the picture of pride. The tax collector, the picture of humility. Again, I'm using Tim Chester's words because I think they're helpful. Humility, of course, isn't some spiritual achievement that merits God's grace. Quite the opposite. It's the realization that we can never merit blessing from God. You see, this is 
This is why the tax collector goes away justified. is because he didn't justify himself. Instead, he threw himself on the mercy of God. It's a recognition that grace is our only hope. It's giving up on ourselves and finding all we need in Jesus. Now, you know, I've met over the course of my life many, many broken people. But in their brokenness, they still do not have humility. Because they're still thinking they have to, in some way, justify, make up for. They have to change themselves. And, and they would never see themselves as a Pharisee because they have no righteousness that commends themselves. But they do the exact same thing as a Pharisee by saying, I'm going to do better, God. I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to start doing that. You see, that's no different than the Pharisee. That's still operating that somehow I can make myself better so that in some ways I can deserve to be justified. What's so awesome about the tax collector, he does none of that. He recognizes, maybe it was easier for him in some ways, but he recognizes I have nothing to commend myself. So he throws himself on the mercy of God. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm going you know, to turn my life around. He doesn't say, I'm going to do better from now on, because then he would just become another Pharisee. What he does is in his humility, he recognizes that the only realm in which he can be saved is the realm of grace and the realm of God's mercy. See, you and I, have to, we have to learn that lesson. You may be a church-going person. You may be a Bible reader, a prayer warrior. But you could be a Pharisee just as easy as can be if you think something about what you've done or are doing in some way measures up. It does not. It is always grace. It is always mercy. And if you are doing any of those things to justify yourself, if you're doing any of those things in order to commend yourself as acceptable to God because of the things you do or the things you haven't done, then you're no different than the Pharisee. You're still trying to have a measuring stick. And if you are honest, you will realize the measuring stick always measures that you're empty, that you're broken. So we have to, like the like the publican, like the tax collector, we have to give up on ourselves and find all we need in Jesus. I, I always think it's fascinating people say to me, well, I just, I really don't, I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his mercy. I don't deserve, that's exactly the point. That's why it's grace. That's why it's mercy. That's why Jesus uses a tax collector. He was the most undeserving of all. You know, if you're frustrated at your ability to change, then the first step is to give up, to give up on yourself. Repent of your self-reliance. Repent of your self-confidence. But then the second step, and you see, if, 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 if you stop at the first step, you're lost. The second step is... <laughs> To rejoice that God's grace is for you. See, the longer I do this, the more I realize I have no hope in myself. It's time to give up on ourselves. My willpower is not enough. You know, my abilities are not enough. Not to live the life that I'm promised to live. Not to live the life that I long to live. 
The only place I can live the life I was truly designed for is in the grace of God. And so it is that when you fail or when you see the places of failure, you begin to rejoice in God's grace. His grace is a sea of forgiveness. And His grace is the power to transform. No other place will there be real change, lasting change, permanent change. See, to humble for ourselves before God in a way is, it, it's not easy for us to say this, but we have a God complex. The Pharisee had a God complex. This is why walking humbly before our God is what God wants. He wants us to walk we wa- he wants us to walk in the reality of our lowliness. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. To embrace your lowliness is not, it's not fake. It's reality. But this kind of humility is the secret to receiving God's grace. One of the writers said, grace flows downhill. It doesn't flow up. It flows down. We need the lower life because we need to live in the grace of God. We grow up into Christ by growing down into our own lowliness and recognition of our lowliness. If we really want to experience the fullness of His grace, we must get lower, humbling ourselves. Because doing so will leave the lifting up to God. Can I... Take a moment. I, I, this has been a personal journey for me as a leader, as a pastor, because I had no idea how much pride I had. I had no idea how much, how much my desires for ministry, my desires for success, all these things were based in my pride because I could, I could excuse them by saying, I'm driven to build the church. I'm driven for the mission of Jesus. But it was... It, it was so interesting as God stripped me of my pride. And, and when he was doing it, I wasn't too happy with him. But he stripped me of my own ability to succeed. He stripped me of my own ability to do what I thought were, you know, the objectives and the plans and the goals that he would want for me. And I can remember in my pride being often angry with God or frustrated with God because it wasn't working out the way that I planned or the way I thought it should. And I was thinking this morning as I was preparing that one of the areas where God was so uh, careful and so intentional in dealing with my pride was when I first came to Risen King in 2004. Um, Any of you that know my wife, Lisa, you'll know that she loves a house, a house decorating, uh, making an expression of her personality. That's when my wife is the healthiest. That's when she's the happiest. And we moved into a parsonage, and the parsonage was very run down. It was very unattractive. It was poorly designed, had not been taken care of. Now, one of the things about a parsonage is, is it's about, it's similar to renting a place. So, you, uh, you know, the person living in the parsonage, you don't want to put money into it. It's not your house. And because the church owns it, nobody else wants to put money into it because the church has no money. So I watched 
as these early years of our ministry, and we were very busy, and we were, there were a lot of demands on us and on our time, but our house was not a refuge. It was not a place where we could go back to and, and feel like, here, we put our stamp on this, Lisa could work on projects, all this stuff. It was very, very, I could just see in my wife, it was very difficult for her. But what was difficult for me is, you know, in 2004, uh, prices for houses to buy our own house, it was out of, out of the question. Fixer-uppers were even way out of our, our price range here in New City. And there was no way, there was no way that I could see whatsoever that we could, we could buy a house. And I remember every year I'd pray and I'd say, Lord, I need, I need to be able to buy my wife a house. I need, I need to be able to do this. I feel like, I feel like I'm powerless. And, and what he was doing, he's pushing up my pride, my, my, you know, I should be able to do this. I should be able to accomplish this. Why? Why are you keeping me from this? And I had these incredible times of prayer walks with God in New City and praying with Him. And, and I began to hear from Him so clearly. Trust me. And then I tried, we tried to buy a couple of houses and it fell through. And the, and the Lord spoke to me really clearly. He said, if, 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 if the house is a gift from me, no one can take it from you. And if it's not a gift from the Father, you don't want it. And it took, it was a six-year process, a six-year process of me being stripped to lowliness and dependence and kind of, you know, renouncing this kind of, I should be able to buy my family a house kind of thing and, 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 and yielding it to him. And then in 2010, I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a popping of the bubble, of the real estate bubble. And houses began to drop in terms of price. At the just the right time, the Lord showed us a house. When I first saw it, it was, it was $200,000 more than what we paid for it. The house dropped $200,000 when we were able to make an offer on it. And it was so interesting because I didn't have enough for the down payment. I, I preached at two conferences, one in Canada and one in Europe. And the people, instead of giving me like an honorarium, they did it in both places. They did a love offering. I've never, I've never received that kind of money for a conference. Both conferences ended up giving me enough money for the down payment and the closing costs because people just... There was an outpouring of love. That was the Lord providing. And even as I say this to you, I'm so humbled by that. It was the grace of God. It was the mercy of God, even in something as, as you know, just as ordinary in a way as buying a house. It was all waiting on him for the right time. The house comes down $200,000. The down payment came in through two, through two conferences and, and, and the goodness of the board at Risen King. And we were able to, to buy a house that we've been in for 11 years and has been a place of blessing and a haven for our family. You see, it's not just that there's some kind of, you know, pride in this religious realm or humility in the religious realm. It's about humility in every realm of your life. It's about believing 
that everything from where you where you live to what you eat, what you drink, what you put on your back on clothes, that God's grace is for all of that. You know, it's not a spiritual achievement when it comes to humility. It's it's an activation of God's grace. It's the realization you're not the one who deserves it or merits it. It's because Jesus has deserved it and Jesus has merited it and now he's exchanged it to you and for you. Now, if if that's making sense to you, then it starts to make sense that the first step of humility is to repent of self-reliance, is to repent of self-confidence. And it's 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 to stop in a way to realize self-justification, like 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 the Pharisee, he's presenting why he's a good person. He's presenting why he's a worthy person. And it, it, it actually, in doing so, he has to ignore and, and completely uh, not acknowledge the areas of conviction, the areas that need change, because he's got to justify himself. So he hides his weakness in order to, in a way, magnify his strengths. And all of us have these kind of avoidance strategies. Um, self-reliance is a big thing among most people. I'll, I'll do okay by myself. Self-justification, I'm doing okay. You know, these are, these are claims that we each of us need to realize are part of spiritual pride. Now, think about the first sin. What immediately took place? Well, it was blame. There were excuses made. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. One of the things that you begin to realize if you really want to change is you can't you can't excuse or justify what happens by blaming someone else. If if there's anger in you, if there's depression, if there's anxiety in you, it's not someone else's fault. And making it someone else's fault will never allow you to change or be free. Um, you know, think about it. even as a kid, we basically say, you made me do this. You, you know, as an adult, you say, you provoked me, you started it. I was afraid, I, you know, I was afraid of what they would say, so I lied to them or I didn't tell them the truth. We blame people often for what we haven't done. You know, if you if if you had helped me, then I would have gotten this done. If you'd been there for me, you know, if you had loved me the way I needed to be loved. We blame people, we blame circumstances. Sometimes we can blame our own biology or you know, the uh, context can can be, you know, we can say, well, th- if I didn't have this context, you know, this person just makes me so mad. You know, uh, our biology or background. My father used to be like this, so I'm like this. So, and sometimes people even say, if you went through what I went through, then you'd be just as angry as me. But one of the most passive things that Satan wants to get your heart involved with is to say, there's nothing I can do about this. This is just the way I am. It's so interesting because the enemy never never really succeeds with outright lies. So what he does is he, he takes re- the reality of circumstances, biology, background, he takes all these realities and he makes them the reason that you should continue in passivity. 
But why that works, why the enemy's work happens is because of our pride. I don't like to look at myself and I'm afraid to look at myself. Yes, external forces, factors can influence. They can even trigger sin. This is part of what discernment and wisdom must take into account. But none of these factors ever offer the full explanation for why we react in such sinful ways. At some point, and this was not easy for me, I grew up in a, I, I grew up in a very excusing family. You know, the rest of the world was messed up, but we, you know, we, were, we were all right kind of thing, and it's all their fault. And I, I had to break that family uh, generational pattern of blaming everybody else if I was going to change. I couldn't blame the lack of money. I couldn't blame the lack of resources. I couldn't blame you know, any past generations. I had to say, I'm choosing how to respond to my circumstances. And my choices, my choices are revealing by God revealing where the change needs to take place in terms of attitudes and beliefs and values. And it isn't until you end the blame game that you can really turn in humility and see God exalt you. It, it is the enemy's strategy to convince your heart that actions in your life are inevitable, unavoidable, or in some way they are appropriate because of the past that you've had or because of the personality that you have. So Jerry Bridges, again, has some really helpful things here. He says, we need to stop just using the generic idea of sin. He says, we need to start using the language of disobedience when we deal with our sin rather than talking about defeat. Bridges says this, when I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I have been disobedient, then that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. That is an amazing truth, friends. See, that's the essence of humility. The, the essence of humility is not, not say, oh, I'm such an awful sinner. Or, you know, sin has defeated me. Rather, the essence of humility is to say, I have disobeyed God. I have failed to allow the love of God to penetrate into this area. I have failed to believe and trust in God. And I have disobeyed him. See, in the end, and this is really, this is, might be difficult to make this connection, but it's important. In the end, every blame you make actually ends up on God's doorstep. Though we point to other people, our circumstances, our biology, whatever it is, we're really saying, God, it's your fault. You allowed these circumstances. You made me the way I am. But James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed 
by his own desire. <laughs> Don't you understand something? The grace and the mercy of God, the cross of Jesus Christ tells you, God is not out to get you. He's not trying to trip you up. He hasn't put you in impossible situations in which you are bound to sin. It's our own evil desires that entice us. Now, you might say to me, oh, it's different for me. My circumstances are unique. Other people have choices, but my behavior is inevitable. So it's really not my fault. You see, we want to be special, even special about how we, you know, how we sin. But God says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, nor is your behavior inevitable. This is where humility has to come in. Your behavior is not inevitable. Listen to what Paul says, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Wow. So there's no repentance, Paul is saying, without, uh, no real change without responsibility. This is what ultimately humility is, taking the responsibility for your choices. All those other factors, they're real. And they have to be dealt with. That's part of your wisdom is to realize all the factors that are triggering you, all the factors that you deal with. But when it comes to temptation, pride says, well, I'm unique. I, you know, no one else is going through what I'm going through. Or nobody else has all the you know, situation I have. That's pride. But humility says exactly what the Apostle Paul says. No temptation no temptation is different from you, for you, as it is for anyone else. And God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. He'll always have a way out so that you can endure. So, it's not, I repent, but it's not my fault. And it's not, I repent, but, you know, what I did wasn't really that bad, considering. What, what James is saying what Paul is saying is true repentance lets nothing get in its way. I love this because that's, you see, that's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee said, you know, I'm not going to repent because I have nothing to repent of. The tax collector said, I'm repenting because I need to repent of everything. The problem was both of them needed to repent of everything. But the one let his pride get in the way. And the other let nothing get in the way. So think about the tax collector. Think about the Pharisee. Hey, if they had their repentance circle, how would they approach it? Would they approach it with a measuring stick? Do you approach it with a measuring stick? You know, yeah, I have these things in my life, but they're not that bad. Or do you approach it with a, you know, a measuring stick, compare yourself, you know, I'm not as bad as I could be. I think it's time to break the measuring stick. It's time to say, I don't want anything to stand in the way of true repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.